Welcome to episode 213 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Today, we're joined on the podcast by special guest Nick Hogan. Nick is a computational designer who's focused on the creation of design and fabrication techniques that emulate or implement biological processes. Nick's work includes projects with Harvard iLab and bio-inspired technologies currently being developed at the Wyss Institute. Nick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So for our podcast topic this week, we're going to explore further one of my favorite subjects uh, around bio-inspired design and biofabrication and some of the science that goes into it. Bio, bio, bio. That's, that's right. Bio everything. And, you know, one of our big touch points on the show is the intersection of design and science. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that today. Uh, with Nick as our resident expert. So Nick, let's let's start off with a softball question and we'll get into the harder ones later. Perfect. So how do you view this intersection of design and science and how do you describe uh, what you're doing in, in your field for the non-initiated? Gosh, well, I would say it's important to recognize that design is just the process of shaping any kind of matter, any sort of media, um, whether it be digital or physical, into any kind of form. So that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And where design actually becomes cool is when it intersects with stuff that we know and are familiar with. That's when you get these things like the design of systems that we interact with in every day, or the design of ideas, or in my case, the design of things that might be alive or act like things that are alive. Interesting. So what brought you to this uh, field, uh, you know, in the first place? Obviously, you're a very smart guy. You're interested in, in biology and science. How did that uh, intersect with design for you? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a very smart guy compared to a lot of the people who have been operating this field for a long time. I, I got into it recently. I was an engineer up until about a year ago and really have adopted computational design more recently. Um, but I always wanted to create things that were like I saw them in nature. I grew up, you know, catching snakes and looking at spiders and finding things out in the woods. And it was always really clear to me that nothing we were making was as beautiful as like one leaf from one tree. And nothing we were making was um, as complicated as, as roots and grass. Um, so the, the potential of nature's design process was always there and apparent in my life. And it wasn't until right towards the end of college that I started to become familiar with people who were making living things and designing the way that living things have learned to design through evolution. So it was really getting exposed to groups like Mediated Matter at MIT or seeing the work happening at the Wyss Institute um, that I started to realize that this was not just something that was amazing that was happening. It was something that was accessible to me if I was willing to learn the right tools to work with it. Very cool. So let's shift to talking about some of the work that you've been uh, looking into and researching and, and implementing over your time here in Boston. So I wanted to start off by talking about your biofluorescence project, because I know that technology is being further developed over at Wyss. 
Um, and we, we're all familiar with biofluorescent materials, uh, whether they be uh, plants that could glow in the dark or, or I don't know if the firefly has elements of biofluorescence or there's the classic, uh, the scorpion uh, that uh, under ultraviolet light has a, a certain luminescence. But what was sort of the, the, the core research that you did with your biofluorescent project? Because I know you had some interesting discoveries along the way. Yeah, definitely. And like with a lot of cool discoveries, it started with a very fundamental misunderstanding of a material that we were working with, which is called chitosan. Um, and like the name suggests, it's derived from chitin, which is what makes up shrimp shells and the cell walls of mushrooms. And it's this ubiquitous natural material. So we know it can take many forms. Um, and we got interested because we knew that chitin was in exoskeletons for these scorpions. And we knew that scorpions glowed in the dark. And we thought, hey, chitosan comes from chitin. Well, maybe we can make it glow by working with the same materials. The thing is that chitosan is, is materially very different than chitin. But what we found was when we used this material that we derived from scorpion shells and we combined it with chitosan, it actually improved the fluorescent properties of the material and made them last for months when the half-life before was 24 hours. So it was this, this discovery that stemmed from a misunderstanding but was ultimately inspired by something that happens in nature that we thought could be replicated in a very cool way, which is the production of fluorescent solids. So I, I read as you know part of your work that um, industries that would be interested in using this material might, might include uh, uh, the healthcare industry, for example. Um, could you explain to me uh, sort of how, how that material might be used uh, in, a, in a healthcare context? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that one of the things that's always appealing about chitosan is that it's not naturally harmful to humans. It's, a, it's something that you could eat if you wanted to. And even though it has all these uses as a plastic material, we like it because it's biodegradable and it's safe for the environment and it's safe for the human body. And people are already studying its properties with wound healing and bunch of other things that I don't fully understand. So we like the idea that this could be a, um, a molecule that can enhance fluorescence and allow it to last longer without being harmful to the human body. Most of our fluorescent antifade agents that are on the market right now, they're similar to formaldehyde. They're fixatives and they kill the cells that they interact with. So this could be an antifade agent that actually can exist in the body while someone's alive, maybe allowing somebody to tag a tumor during surgery and be able to visualize things that you normally wouldn't be able to see just under natural light. And yeah, being able to have, have a lasting fluorescence in the biomedical sphere would certainly be something that could be of use to people. So we hope we can develop it that far. Yeah, you did some fabrication around uh, this material. What, what kinds of things did you, did you fabricate as, as, as part of your research? So we built a hanging structure that was composed of 18 panels, and the panels were a backbone of largely sugars, fructose and glucose, and similar to glass in their properties and the way that we fabricated them. And then the final layer of it was this chitosan, this fluorescent chitosan material that we put over the entire structure. And so the idea was that it was a hanging structure that we shined ultraviolet light onto, and then it would in turn reflect blue light down onto us. Um, and we took these, these pictures of it and, and demonstrated that it was this fluorescent solid. And the thing that was cool about that was that it had nothing to do with the biomedical application of this material. It was just something that we could show people and they immediately understood what we were doing. They could see that this was 
a structure that glowed under a certain kind of light. And that got them engaged with science that me talking about biomedical dyes probably wouldn't have gotten them engaged with. Yeah, it sounds like education is a big part of of your work or or at least uh, a desired output. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for for any designer and especially in in a field where um, science is often misunderstood or is published in ways that it's not accessible to large populations, thinking about how you can make people realize what you are doing and share your work with them requires us to pursue some non-traditional methods. That's not to say that we could have gotten published in a high-hitting journal. We did the most rudimentary level of science, but it got people engaged enough that we could continue working on this, which was a wonderful experience as a designer to see that our method of engaging people was actually resonating and allowing us to communicate across disciplines. What's the path to commercialization with the things that you're doing? Are they just sort of open scientific discoveries that people are using at their whim, or are there things that you're patenting and then there's a process there? Like what, how do you fit into the, the broader sort of capitalist system? Well, the first step for all of this is verification of the science and further testing of the material. So when we're working in a design setting, we often don't have the luxury of time to lay out perfectly meticulous experiments where we can then characterize our results well and have them reviewed by our peers. We just have to build something that works and get it to where it needs to be at this deadline. So right now our process is largely going back and repeating experiments and asking some of the more fundamental scientific questions like, does this chitosan combination prolong the fluorescence just of the molecule that we derived or does it work with other fluorophores and can we use it with other dyes? Um, and then is it really chitosan or are there other polymers that could have this effect? When you combine silk with dyes, do you get a preserving effect? So answering those first questions, I think, is, is more important than developing a functional product. Once you have that science down and you look at it, if you are faced with the fact that this really is a unique combination, it's about chitosan and it's about the molecule that we've combined with it, then you have a product that can actually be commercialized because you have a lasting dye that only works in one combination. But if you find that it works with all these other dyes and all these other preservatives, then it stays in the scientific sphere. We have something new to research, which is anti-fade properties from naturally occurring polymers. So either way, I think that what, what you're doing is something that will lead to inventions in the future that could be commercialized. But right now, we're kind of taking a step back and trying to really characterize the science behind it. Great. So let's pivot now to some of your other work that you're that you're doing in conjunction with Harvard iLab, um, and I wanted to talk about your HiveMind project because it's you know relevant to an extremely important uh, area of the economy, which is, of course is agriculture. And uh, why don't why don't you tell us a little bit about HiveMind and and uh, what what brought about defining uh, the need for the project? Yeah, absolutely. So. Just to start out, um, HiveMind is a new form of beehive, which is meant to make it so anybody can participate in beekeeping and to reduce the amount of bees that die every year. And the reason that we're interested in this is that uh, we rely on pollinators, mostly honeybees, for 35% of our food production. And in the past 50 years, we've lost 50% of the honeybee population. And while there are varying accounts of why this might be happening and the numbers are disputed, it's pretty clear that most people who raise bees are losing up to 40% of their bees every single winter. It has to do with their genetics being weakened through inbreeding or us selecting for weak bees through different processes. 
And so we, we wanted to take a step back from that and really consider the question, is the upcoming generation going to raise bees in their current state? And the answer was no. And that's a problem because if the upcoming generation doesn't raise bees, we're probably going to lose them as a species and we're going to have to find other ways to pollinate our crops. So then the design question became, how do you develop a new relationship between humans and honeybees? And what we came up with was this self-contained ecosystem that would allow for the regulation of temperatures when they get too hot or too cold, regulate humidity so you don't have fungal growth, and also gather important data. How many bees are coming in and out of a hive? When is it safe to extract honey? All of those are, are questions that we have the technology to address, and we hope we'll get a wider population engaged in beekeeping once we launch our product. Yeah, that's that's uh, completely fascinating to me because it, it seems like as a species, humanity has managed to screw up pretty well the, um, the bee population for starters. So we kind of created the problem set ourselves through uh, various practices, which I'm sure that we don't quite fully understand the systemic repercussions of. Uh, and so now it's... Um, we don't even partially understand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so now it, it, it's... It's part of our responsibility to right. to find a way to stimulate the the bee population, so we don't end up creating some kind of famine because we can't figure out how to pollinate crops. <laughs> uh, so, so how have the initial uh, prototypes gone? You know, what, what stage are you with the project now? Right now, we have a sensory system that we developed for um, counting bees um, going in and out of a hive. And we were really fortunate that a research group at Harvard had already been doing this and making smart hives to gather information on that. So just by being able to partner with people who are already passionate about this, we were able to piggyback off that technology to make this sensor system. We've hooked it up with a system for recording temperature and humidity. And the next step in that is hooking it up to our fan and um, heat blanket system and to construct our first prototype of this hive in the next two weeks. The reason that we have been delayed in this year of developing it is largely because we're trying to reimagine how you get honey out of a hive. And we were met with a lot of challenges that people just haven't had answers to. And I've, I've been raising bees since I was six. And this is part of the reason that I wanted to, to change how it was done. When you go out to extract honey right now, you go out to your hive in full protective equipment. You have to fake a forest fire so that the bees all go to the queen and get out of the parts of the hive that you want to interact with. So you're setting stuff on fire, you're wearing protective equipment, and then you have to physically open up the hive, remove all of the frames that have honey in them, brush bees off of them, move it to a new location, use a hot knife, cut off all of the wax from those combs, put those frames into a centrifuge and extract all this honey. And it's like, a day's effort and you end up with 30 gallons of honey and no one needs 30 gallons of honey. That's just an insane amount of honey to have. We had six hives too. So that's obviously a really high number of, of hives to be working with in this case. Anyways, we were like, that's absurd. These, these animals are thinking that they're dying so that we can go out and take all of their food at once. With HiveMind, what we're doing is we're developing a novel system for slowly extracting that honey in a totally passive way. So at night, frames that have capped um, honey in them that you would be able to harvest are collapsed when the bees are all inside the brood and they're near the queen. And as those frames collapse, honey is slowly dripped out of it and collected in a vessel. Our dream is just that you would get a notification on your phone that says your honey's ready and you go out and you get a fresh jar of honey. 
What that allows us to do is never overextract. You can take only as much honey as is surplus and will allow the bees to last the winter. And it means that you don't have to go out to these hives and have this invasive experience of stealing all their food and setting stuff on fire, which granted people do very well now and they're very considerate as to how they treat their bees. But we just want to develop a more passive system that's more like having an apple tree where you go out and you take as much as you need and you're benefiting that system by taking care of it. What does the whole system look like? Like I know, for example, right now, one thing that happens is trucks will drive bees across the country to oh, yeah. pollinate in different states and different seasons. Are you imagining the bees being sort of perma-located in this model as opposed to being driven around? So um, mobile pollination units are something that's really interesting to us, and it's kind of wild that there's this massive industry spawn around renting bees to pollinate crops, but that's how all of the almonds in California are pollinated right yeah. now. We are developing this unit for more like the weekend warrior backyard chicken farmer person mm -hmm. in Portland. We like this to be a backyard unit that allows the normal person to become a beekeeper. We realize that there's probably more money going into mobile pollination or the industrial honey side, but we like the idea of engaging everyday people and protecting the environment and protecting a vital species. And so we would rather make this something that hobbyists are using than industrialists are using. Well, and there has been an explosion in hobbyist beekeeping in recent years. There has been. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with developments that make beekeeping easier. One of them that did a great job was the Flow Hive, which raised um, more than $12 million on Indiegogo. They way overshot their campaign and it was like a father and his son in New Zealand who just made a beehive that there wasn't really that much different about it except instead of using a centrifuge to extract you could go out and on tap have honey to fill up a jar and people just came out of the woodwork for it they're like wait this looks like something I could do now and I want to do it so I think that what what we love about talking to people about bees is a lot of people out there want to be beekeepers and they think bees are really interesting and they're rightfully intimidated by the hobby as it is right now. Those are the people that we would really love to see our product and feel like, yes, this is something that I can do. I'm ready to raise bees. Yeah, that's a great project. And, you know, we wish you best of luck as you uh, uh, get that off the ground. Thank you. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, bio-inspired design and engineering and, and how you see this field developing and evolving over time. Uh, I think it was Bill Gates who said that, you know, if, uh, you know, if he had to pick an industry to be involved with, you know, right now, biotech is, is uh, where the interesting work is. How do you see design and bioengineering coming together uh, and, and developing? I mean, to be honest, we're at the very beginning stages of this. Yeah, absolutely. And that can't be emphasized enough, really. That Bill Gates quote is great because I kind of think about biohacking and synthetic biology as being like where computers were 60 years ago, you know, and you're just getting the base mechanisms of how this stuff works. But it's not inconceivable to think that we might be living in a world eventually where you could write your own species and create living things at will. And that's a design process that we frankly, are not prepared to engage with yet. And I don't think that we've answered a lot of the fundamental questions about designing life itself and thinking about what we're doing with the underpinnings of what governs species. It's a bit of a tangent, but I think that going back to the initial question of what is going on in this field and, and what is important about the intersection with design and biology is not 
not a lot of the things that we see in the news with biomimicry making our lives better or improving engineering. What I think is really fundamental and really exciting is that it's a reimagining of how we create things and how we design things. And the things that seem mundane, like imagining that you might be able to grow a structure instead of build a structure, or you might be able to have something that has living skin instead of concrete on it. These are weird out there ideas that we're not comfortable with, but what it, what it shows is a shift in our thinking from us being separate from other living creatures to being part of a greater ecosystem. Amen. And I think that that's the most exciting thing that we're getting to experience right now in design is that people are being really bold with what they're pushing. They're putting stuff out there that makes us uncomfortable, but it's a discomfort that we need. We need to start getting okay with the idea that we're going to lose some control of our design process and we're going to hand it over to processes that have been proven through evolution for millions of years that they're better than us. Yeah, that's that's a... Uh... A heavy mandate and one that uh, I like quite a bit. What kind of breakthroughs do you expect people to see from this field in the coming years? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about that, you know, uh, growing structures or or having a, uh, a living surface on, on buildings, perhaps. Could you uh, dive into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I should preface this by saying uh, I study advanced materials and systems as my designation in my program. So I'm slightly biased in what I'm exposed to, but I think materials are one of those things that is really obvious to us in terms of biologically inspired design. When somebody says that spider silk the quintessential example is, you know, spider silk that is as thick as a pencil could stop a 747 in flight. That's a tangible example that makes us realize why we consider silk to be a super material. And if, as people start to work with that and develop practical applications of that silk, it in turn makes us feel like something like a spider is more important and worth protecting and worth really studying and understanding. So the stuff that's coming out of the material research side of bioinspired design in terms of looking at um, nacre, like mother of pearl, or thinking about living structures that can self-heal the way that skin does, that's amazing and it's tangible and people really understand it. So I think that that's the first thing that we're really getting exposed to. The second thing that I am really excited about is computational strategies that mimic living systems. So things like generative design, which is Right now, when, when we design structures in the field of architecture and design, oftentimes we are defining what shapes are, whether it's through the stroke of a pencil or through a mathematical equation. I have full control over how that structure is going to be shaped. What we're starting to see with things like Project Dreamcatcher over at Autodesk um, and really cool open source software too, is this ability to define a structure not by how it looks, but by what it does. So I can say I need my structure to be supported here and I need it to lift something up here and then have math fill in what the form is in between. And the funny thing that you see when you use these kinds of generative um, pieces of software is everything starts to look like bone or it starts to look like, like hips. Um, and it's the weirdest thing because you start to see biology and life emerge out of this. And then you realize that it's because we are the result of, of optimization and generative design. Everything that we are familiar with in biology has come through evolution trying everything else and all of that failing. So I think that that's exciting to me because it represents a fundamental shift in how much control we have over the design process and how much we are willing to push to practices that have been modeled by nature. That's great. The Autodesk project is especially interesting. They're, they're doing all kinds of interesting work there at Autodesk. 
we're lucky to have them in town. Um, so final question, uh, if I was, you know, looking to, to, to find a bio-inspired product that I could purchase today on the market, uh, what would that be? Or are there, are, are there examples of, of products that either consumers or businesses might consider purchasing? Yeah, <laughs> this is a really fun question. And I was actually, I was talking about it with the lab that I'm working with before I came over here, because... A lot of what we see on the market are things that maybe back solve to biomimicry or they look like a biological system on the outside, but maybe the interior of how it works isn't so defined by biology. One example being something like um, robotic arms that look and move like tentacles. People compare them to octopus, but that's not how an octopus's internal musculature works. It's it's mostly based on pneumatics in the biomedical industry. And then over in nature, you have this complex muscle fiber arrangement. So it looks the same on the outside, but it's not the same on the inside. That being said, there are things that like really blur the line for what is being inspired by biology and what is just looking like biology. I think prosthetics are a great place to look in terms of something that's on the market that is starting to really incorporate biological inspiration, um, especially with electroreactive materials that shrink when you run a current through them. That's an artificial muscle. And thinking about the amount of dexterity that you could put into a prosthetic, if you were able to make artificial muscles for it, is exciting. Um, but then there's other things that, that you wouldn't necessarily think of on an everyday basis that are a lot more mundane, like shatterproof glass a lot of it is based off of the layering structures that you find in things like mother of pearl and in shells. So you would never notice it looking at it. You wouldn't even necessarily think that glass on a windshield is layered, but there are strategies in there that were pulled out of nature. I think all of that to say that there are the things that are more in your face and you look at it and it looks alien or it looks like it's from nature and you get that. And then there's the stuff that's really subtle. And I think that a lot of the, the materials and a lot of the products that we interact with have something in them that was inspired by nature on a fundamental level. Glass is a great example, but thinking about silks, fibers, all these things mimic some aspect of nature. And you just have to have to dig deep into the story to figure out where people got their ideas from to figure it out, I think. Excellent. So I want to say thank you very much, Nick, for joining us today on the show. Thank you. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D-Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Nick, how about you? You can follow me on Instagram at edlynick.hogan. That's E-D-L-I-N-I-C dot Hogan. Excellent. So that's it for episode 213 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett. 
and we'll see you next time. 